Last week we did an introduction, basically kind of an overview of what we can expect as we look at Colossians. This week we'll begin to look at it uh, in verse by verse. As I was driving here this morning, um, checking my Facebook before I left the house and got ready to leave, and um, I had a young lady who, who died this morning. Um, she's a mother of eight, and I've known her and her family for 20 years. She was um, probably in her mid-40s, and she had been uh, suffering with uh, cancer for seven years and waged a really strong battle, as they say. But this morning, she uh, went to be with the Lord. And uh, the oldest child's 18, and then she has uh, eight children, as I said, and a beautiful, wonderful husband. And, um, you know, I've been following her for uh, and her, her struggles now for some time, and she's been so uh, gracious in all of this. And she's obviously not alone. There are some of you in this room this morning who have lost loved ones this past year to various diseases or accidents or other things. Others of you this morning are uh, engaged with uh, your own personal struggles of health uh, and have loved ones who are as well. And it reminds us, when we hear something like that, with just everything about us says, this isn't right, why does this happen, and this is awful, and it is, and it's not right, and the wages of sin is death, and when Adam and Eve sinned, and all of us have sinned, the curse of death came upon this world, and we are all under it, and I got news for you, unless the Lord returns before a few decades, none of us in this room are getting out of here alive either. We are all going to die. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And folks, we can ignore death. We can, we can busy ourselves with all kinds of other activities. We can, we can just keep putting it off and pretend that it's not an issue. It's not going to happen to us. It doesn't happen to people my age. Whatever, all of those things. But at the end of the day, we all know it is there. It is the ultimate enemy. And when we frame it in that way, we need to understand there's only one place in the entire universe that has the answer to that, and it's right here in this room. Because when this young lady passed away this morning, her husband wonderfully wrote that she left this world and is now in the arms of Jesus and has completely won her battle with cancer and will never be sick again one moment the rest of eternity, which is true. The victory that Jesus gave her, that gives all of us over sin and over the grave, is the gospel. And we forget that sometimes. I don't mean we forget the gospel. We forget how powerful it is. We forget how needy, how much we need it, how absolutely hopeless we are without it. None of us can defeat sin. None of us can defeat the grave. And for those who don't know Christ, who are without Him, without His forgiveness, as the Scripture says, it's appointed unto us one time to die, and after that, the judgment. And believe me, if, if you're outside of the grace of God, death is the least of your worries. What happens after? As we said, Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody in the 
Scripture. It is a real place. And so with that in mind, the importance of the gospel, because it is the hope that is in us, we're going to read this morning and the next few weeks from a man who... Paul doesn't have a terminal disease in the sense that we would think of a terminal disease, but he's in prison in Rome, and he's fully aware he's not probably ever going to be free again, and he's going to die a martyr's death, which is exactly what happened. So in in that sense, as Paul's writing these words, he's writing these words of, of a man who is facing death at any moment, at any time. And yet when you look at what he's writing and you see how he's writing, he's writing as a person who has no fear, no anxiety, no dread. In fact, remember, oh, he even says, you know, I don't know whether to live is better or to die is better. And he's not just, he's not just an idiot at that point. He's not, just, he's not just having a martyr complex. He fully understands so much of the gospel and what Christ has done and what the hope of the gospel is that he realizes for him, Being a child of God, being redeemed for him, having within himself the hope of the gospel, death is no enemy any longer. So let's look again at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul's writing to this church at Colossae, the church he's never been to, has never gone to. It's a church that's near Ephesus, and no doubt uh, Epiphrius, who came over from Ephesus and come from Colossia and probably was converted under Paul's preaching, went back and started this church, and now he's become a good friend of Paul. He's journeyed all this way, and he's with Paul, and he's informing Paul about what's going on at the church at Colossia. And there's some problems, and Paul's going to deal with the problems. But first and foremost, Paul's going to talk about the gospel. Because without the gospel, there's no reason to write this letter. Without the gospel, there's no reason to have a church. Without the gospel, there's no answer to anything. So Paul doesn't just dive right into some problems. He begins with the gospel. In all of his letters, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. (laughs) Paul's not an apostle because he chose to be, because he wants to be, because his parents thought it was a good idea, because it seemed like a good career choice, because he wanted to help people, because there was a great need. Paul's an apostle by the will of God. And listen, God has a plan literally and a purpose for your life. And as I've said so many times, the question isn't, how do do I find God's will for my life? The question is, how does my life flow into God's will? God has a purpose and a plan for you. And I I think one of the reasons Paul is so centered in all of this, he fully understands that no matter what happens to him, think about this, whether he is shipwrecked, whether he is imprisoned illegally, whether he's beaten five times with 39 lashes, whether the Christian brothers and sisters turn against him and don't trust him, whether he's facing a martyr's death, none of it really matters. Whether he's in a Philippian jail at midnight, none of it matters in the sense of he's exactly where God wants him to be, and he's fully convinced that everything that happens in his life, every single thing that happens to him, is for a purpose, for the glory of God and for the sharing of the gospel and for God's purposes, and he's completely content in that. Man, you can face any suffering in life if you know it's for a purpose, a right purpose. If you got a phone call in the middle of the night and and you're a parent and you have a a school or a teenager or a, a young adult child and it's the hospital and they say your child's been in an accident and they need a kidney right away and and you're the only one that can give it you're not going to lay in the bed and go I don't want to get up right now 
You're not going to say, I don't like hospitals. You're not going to say, I've got some things planned this weekend. I was going to clean out the garage. You're not going to say, I hate anesthesia. You're going to say, how quickly can I get there? And I don't care if you've got to take it without anesthesia. If it'll save the life of my child, take my kidney. In fact, take both of them, and I'll spend the rest of my life on dialysis so that my child can live. What's that mean? It means you understand the suffering has a purpose. Paul understood that the suffering he endured because he was called by God has a purpose. And when when I become discouraged, despondent, depressed, it's because I'm not fully engaged in the reality that everything that happens in my life... Paul does not say everything is good that happens to him. He said all things work together for good, to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Then they all things are good. It's not good to get beaten five times with 39 lashes. It's not good to be shipwrecked. It's not good to be thrown into Roman prison. But he's aware that some way, sovereign God is going to do only what God can do and work all of this together for God's glory and for his own So he writes these words, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This whole letter begins by Paul understanding, this is not me, this is God. I'm doing what God's called me to do. This is his plan. And Timothy, my brother, and to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And we talked some about that when we did looked at Timothy. Paul often talks about grace and peace, and grace is, is that wonderful thing that we get that we don't deserve, and, and only peace we can have in this world is through the grace of God, by God forgiving us of our sins and making us right with Him, and that brings peace not only with Him, but then peace with one another. So grace, he's not just throwing out words there, okay? Grace, it's what he wants us to have and understand that our salvation is by, by faith through grace. That's even a gift, even the faith to have it. And through our salvation, through that grace of God, through Him withholding what we deserve, which is damnation, and giving what we don't deserve, which is salvation, we can have peace with God. And if we can have peace with God, we can have peace with one another. So grace to you and peace to God our Father, from God our Father. Verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Isn't that awesome? I mean, Paul's letting them know he's, he's in jail, he's, he's in prison, and he's probably going to be martyred, and yet he's spending his time praying for them, and his prayers are of thanksgiving for them. <laughs> so grateful for you. Folks, we, we really do need to affirm one another more than we really do, but that's another sermon for another day. I've got to hurry. Since we heard, listen, verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... And the love that you have for all the saints, why, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. I mean, the joy you have, the love you have, it's not necessarily based on what's happening in your life right now in Colosseum. (laughs) You know, life is difficult daily for us. And for believers in the first century in that culture, very difficult and very tenuous and, and, and a real struggle in many ways. But it's, it's the hope laid up for us that brings us the joy. It's, it's knowing that there's something beyond this. It's, it's knowing it's a fact. It's not something we think might happen, but it absolutely will happen. 
because of the hope, verse 5, laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth. And then he says this, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. The gospel. What is the gospel? I mean, I realize we're standing here in a in, a, in one of the oldest Baptist churches in the county, and of course you know what the gospel is. But I, I think sometimes we, we don't fully comprehend what the gospel is. I think for many of us who've grown up in Baptist churches and evangelical churches, the gospel is the thing when we came to know Jesus, it's the prayer we prayed, it's walking down the aisle, it's acknowledging that I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to save me, and being baptized, okay, that's the gospel, and now I move on with my life. And that's not how Paul sees, that's not, the tr- that's not what we're talking about. The gospel is everything. The gospel, literally, if we wanted to break it down, and the Greek word and all of that, it literally does mean the good news, the truth. I don't know if they say it much anymore, but when I was a kid, if people really wanted to say something was the truth, they'd say, well, that's the gospel truth. <laughs> you know, well, why is that? Because the gospel is the ultimate truth. And it comes from a Greek word, and historians will tell us that you know, at times during a battle or during a war, they, 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 someone, a messenger would come back during the, the battle when it was over, and everyone in the, in the community and in the, in the city was concerned about what the outcome would be, and he would rejoice that the outcome was good news, that the battle had been won. It's the same kind of word. You think about that. The gospel is the, is, the, is the acknowledgement that the battle has been won, that our city's not going to be taken over, that we're not going to be killed and our children carried off into captivity, that we have been victorious. It changes everything. It's the good news. And so when Paul says the gospel, that's what he's... Look, he, he, Jesus preached the gospel. Jesus told us to go share the gospel. In the New Testament, we're told to defend the gospel, <laughs> We're told even to work out the gospel, <laughs> and that's another story for another day. But it's important, and it's not, just, it's not just, as people have often said, the gospel is not just the diving board on which you jump into the Christian life. The gospel is the pool that you swim in every day. It is the Christian life. And if the gospel is just the entry point, then what do you do once you get in there? And, and the problem is that's how many people view it. Well, it's just a process in order which I sort of signed up for heaven, and I got that. Now what happens? And Paul says, no, it's the gospel in you that's the hope that gives you joy, that gives you life. It's the gospel. And so let's look real quickly at one passage of Scripture and then another. Paul describes the gospel in the book of First Corinthians. He's very clear about it. So if you want to go to First Corinthians chapter 15, what a wonderful, wonderful passage because Paul talks about Many things in this passage about the resurrection of the dead and the mystery of victory. What a great and amazing passage 1 Corinthians 15 is. But it begins with this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul here to the church at Corinth is going to describe in just a few words what the good news really is. And over in Colossians, he says, I have this 
I've heard this wonderful news about you, and, and, and I have the greatest hope for you and the greatest love for you, not because of you're great people and you know how to cook well and you're real hospitable and you love me and you send me money or you support my ministry. or No, because of the gospel that is in you. So Paul writes here, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For as I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, and this is the gospel. Ready? Let me ask you what it is. How do you defend it? How do you describe it? Paul does. It's very brief. It's very good. It's very powerful. It's very impactful. That Christ died for our sins. There's some people who don't want to talk about the atonement. There's some people who, now, you know, if you've been in the Baptist church all of your life and you've been Baptist, the atonement is normal for you. But there are some who say, well, the atonement means that God punished Jesus for things he didn't do. That's not fair. And, and, and that's us taking our human aspects and, and, and applying them to God. And God became Christ. He, he, he became flesh. He dwelt among us and he bore our sin. And you can't remove the atonement from the gospel. And Paul labels it here from the very beginning that he died. Why did he die? For our sins. Now, without getting too deep in the woods, some people say, well, he died as a model for how we're to live, to love, to be sacrificial in giving. And, and, to, and that's true. I mean, we look at the love that Jesus has for us, and he's willing to die for us, and that motivates us to love him and love one another. But that's not the primary reason he died. Paul doesn't say here he died so that we would be motivated to love each other. He said he died here because we have a sin problem. He died for our sins in accordance, why? With the Scripture. Paul said, I didn't dream this up. You see this from Genesis all the way through the Scripture, that a a Messiah has been promised. That's why we go to the temple. That's why we we sacrifice the the lambs and the goats. That's the whole putting the blood of the lamb across the doorpost when the children of Israel were freed from Egypt, all of those things. Jesus is the lamb. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture and that he was buried. I mean, he went in the ground like we're going to. He died like we're all going to unless Jesus comes back while we're alive. He was buried in the ground, but unlike us, he rose on the third day. Again, Paul says, in accordance with the Scripture. And then he appeared... To Cephas, and then to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, least of all to me, Paul says, is one untimely born, for I am the least of the apostles. But Paul makes it clear here, the gospel is that Jesus came, he lived, he died for our sins, he was buried, he rose on the third day, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he makes intercession for us, and that's the gospel. So how does that change my life every day? Well, I'm glad you ask. Because we're really not going to fully comprehend and get the blessing of Colossians until we fully understand a really good picture of the gospel. And listen, there are great pictures of the gospel all throughout the Scripture. And we can go to many different places and find them. In fact, you have a hard time 
not finding them in many ways. They're, they're everywhere. And I had you and I look at this together a few weeks ago, but I want us to see it again. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 17. The hope that Paul has and the joy that he has for the Colossians. Now, he's going to get into some stuff in a few, pretty quickly with the Colossians where there, there's going to be a lot of correction they need to make and things like that. But he begins with this wonderful foundation that they have received the good news. They are recipients of the gospel and that they can love each other and, 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 and be content in this world because of the hope that's laid before them because of what Jesus has done for them. So let's look at what the gospel looks like in our daily, how it changes our life. In 1 Samuel 17, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succoth, and and that which belongs to Judah. And they encamped there. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up. The battle line against the Philistines, verse 3, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. Verse 4, and there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was over nine feet, six cubits, and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. We could go on and on and on and on. And then he says in verse 8, it says, And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come up to draw up for battle? I, am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 11, and when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. There wasn't a single person among the entire Israeli army who would stand a chance against Goliath, and they knew it. They were hopeless. There isn't a single person in this room that's going to stand a chance against death. It's hopeless. don't care how, how much money you have. I don't care ultimately how many doctors you go to. I don't care... How smart you might be, you might be able to, through health, and certainly those of us who live in North America have, God's blessed us with greater opportunities for uh, health care, and, and God uses that to extend our lives and extend the quality of our lives, and we live in a time when we're very grateful that God has used that in a very real way. But ultimately, there's Goliath, <laughs> and we can't defeat him. When we know that, we can try to ignore him, we can try to live day by day and pretend he's not there or just put it out of our minds, but there he is. Not one of us in this room can defeat him. Not one of us is going to get out of this alive. Not one of us. Here's an enemy that none of us can defeat. And even the king, Saul, can't do it. And basically, if you want to look at the next whole chapter, you know the story. Basically, the the... 
The Hebrews were hiding in the caves and the shrubs, terrified. And along comes David, right? He comes to bring some food to his brothers. And he hears this Philistine mocking God and making fun of the people of God and taunting God. And everybody else is terrified. But this young boy, he's not. And so he, again, this you can read the story. It's a great story. It's right there in your Bible. There's no reason you can't read your Bible during the week. You'll be all right, trust me. So you can read the story, read it to your children, but you know the story. First, they just say, this is crazy. We can't give it to this boy, but then nobody else is going to go against him, and so they load down David with all the armor of Saul, and it doesn't work. He takes it off, and he's ready just to go out there. So he goes out, and he mates, he he, 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 he confronts Goliath in this amazing, ridiculous picture of this largest man probably on the face of the earth and the strongest warrior in the greatest armor you could have at the time who'd probably kill so many people wouldn't even keep account. And here is this young shepherd boy with no armor whatsoever and not a bit of fear in him. And there's some taunting going back and forth. And it looks like, I love this part, it looks like we are way outmanned. <laughs> you ever wake up in the morning and feel that way? That we are way outmanned? That we're way, the culture is so strong against us? Or when the doctor calls you and says, look, I'm sorry, but you have to come in and talk to me. This, there's nothing else we can do. You get an idea of, uh, that's Goliath, and this is some shepherd boy. This is way beyond our pay scale. That's the way it looked. David took those stones and put them in that little slingshot, and he let them go, and they they found the weak point in Goliath's armor right in his temple, and he fell. And David wasn't done yet. I realize sometimes in children's wings of churches, we have the picture of, you know, David maybe on the wall or painted where he's got the little slingshot and maybe Goliath's fallen over. But we never show what ultimately happened, amen? It kind of terrify three-year-olds probably. Because what ultimately, and, there's a real, and that's a bit of a problem because the real victory isn't the slingshot. The real victory is that little David went and he took that huge sword out of Goliath's sheath, and what did he do? He cut off Goliath's head. He didn't just knock him out with a rock. He severed his head. And then he held the head up. And when he held the head up, what happened? Everybody cheered. Because now that's good news. We were going to die, but now we're going to live. Let me tell you what. You're not David and Goliath's not your problems and your sin in that picture. You and I are Saul and his army hiding in the woods and the bushes and in the rocks, and David is Jesus Christ, who comes up and kills death for us and does for us what we can't do. And he doesn't just kind of do it, he totally does it. And he holds up the head and goes, you see, we have nothing to fear anymore. That's the gospel. 
That's why I can have joy when I'm sick. That's why I can have joy, as Paul said, when I have little or when I have nothing, when I'm free or when I'm in prison. To live is great, to die is great. There's nothing because Jesus has already won the victory. And he tells the Colossians, we're going to begin this letter. I'm thanking God for you because of the gospel that changed you, the good news that you embrace that is in you the hope of glory. And when you wake up every day and you realize the battle has already been won, The victory is already ours. And when Paul writes to the Corinthians in that passage I was reading just a moment ago about the gospel, they're concerned about death. They see some of their loved ones dying, and they think, well, if Jesus is able to raise people from the dead, if he was able to raise from the dead, why why then must we die? And Paul writes these amazing words to the church there in Corinth. Listen to this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, Paul says, how come some of you say, but there is no resurrection of the dead? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. (laughs) It all depends on that, Paul said. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21, for as by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all of us die like Adam, we've all sinned, but this is so good and so wonderful. But in Christ, all will be made alive. Christ is the first fruits then, as his coming, those who belong to Christ. But I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Some of us will still be alive when Jesus returns. Some of us will not face physical death. Maybe none of us in this room, but at some point when Jesus physically returns, this is what happens. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for this perishable body must put on an imperishable, and the mortal body puts on immortality. And when the perishable has put on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying which is written in the Old Testament, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Goliath comes out and says, nobody can defeat me. I'm going to kill you all. But the power of sin is the law. That is Goliath. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Because the gospel has won. Because as we stick our head up over the ramparts of our city, and we're concerned how the battle went out there, the next thing we see is it going to be the enemy army coming to take over our city, kill all of the men and carry off the women and children in captivity and burn it down? Or is the next thing we see a messenger shouting, 
good news. Good news. We've won. We've won. It changes everything. The gospel changes everything. The gospel has nothing to do with you and me except that we are recipients of it. It's not because we've earned it. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because we bring anything of value to God that he needs that he doesn't already have. It's that he looked down upon us and he saw that because of our sin, we had brought upon ourselves the curse of death and his own wrath, his holy wrath. And the only way to relieve that and to remove that curse was for him himself to become a man, to live a sinless life, and to lay down his life as Jesus in his substitutionary death and take all the sin of all who would be redeemed and lay them on his own son at one time and work out all of his holy wrath for all of our sin on Jesus. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, and then he died for that sin, and he was buried, but God raised him from the dead. And he defeated Satan's sin in the grave. And he won the battle you and I could not win. Just like David won the battle, Saul and his armies couldn't win. And there isn't any cancer. There isn't any Parkinson's disease. There isn't any automobile accident. There isn't anything in this world that can separate us from the love of God. Because John, Paul writes, or excuse me, Jesus writes in that wonderful letter, that John, that wonderful gospel that John records, Jesus writes these words. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when Jesus uses the word you there, it's not you all, it's individual. I'm going to prepare a place for, put your name there if you're a child of God. Mark, I'm going to prepare a place for you, Mark. And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, then obviously I'm going to come again and receive you. That where I am, you will be also. Because you see, Mark, in my father's house, there are lots of rooms. And I'm going to prepare one just for you. No one can take that away. Jesus said, no one that the father has given me, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Look, I know at times we look around and we think, man, the world is so strong. The culture is so strong. We're so weak. And I know some people who deconstruct and leave their faith say, well, you know, we pray and the prayers aren't answered. We ask God and things don't happen. That's so short-sighted. Because <laughs> one day, one day, you're going to close your eyes in death. And if you're a child of God, as we said a few weeks ago, the angels are going to carry you right to heaven. And you're going to open your eyes and you're going to see the most amazing, I can't even begin to describe the glory and the paradise that awaits us. And it's real. It's not a figment. It's not a dream. It's real. And we said all the angels, we talked about the multitude upon multitude of angels singing and praising God. We're going to rule and reign forever for all eternity. As the Apostle Paul said, even in this passage, he's writing to the Corinthians, Brother, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We don't exactly know what we're going to look like, but we're going to know one another. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus went there and took Peter and James or, and John with him, and they saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus. I mean, they knew who Moses was. Moses knew who Elijah was. We're going to know each other in heaven. We're going to be together. There's never going to be another sin. I, I don't think we fully understand what... I know I don't understand, dear ones, and neither do you, what five minutes of our life would be like if we weren't being attacked and 
and tempted and dragged down by Satan. The anxiety we feel, the, the, the sadness we feel, the anger we feel, the lust we feel, the pride we feel, all of that, none of that it is all sin. It's all Satan who never lets up. Can you imagine just, if we could just have five glorious minutes where he left us alone, yet we're going to have all eternity where I'm never going to want to sin again. That's our inheritance, and it's real. And that's the good news, and that's the gospel. And that's how we can get through this life. That's how we can be patient with one another. Because it's, it doesn't matter, how many times do I have to say this? It doesn't matter how much you've done for anybody, how much you've done for this church. When you wake up every day and realize, without Jesus, I have no hope. But he's completely satisfied everything he needs to do in order for me to have eternal life and become a child of God and be an object of God's love, not his wrath for all eternity. And as I said, some who walk away from their faith, or as we even saw this week with Joshua Harris, did deconstruct their faith and leave it because it wasn't working, it didn't happen, and all of that. So short-sighted. Because this is not all there is. It'd be like looking at David and Goliath going, you know, I think I'm walking away from this because this isn't going to work out very well. Well, you haven't seen it all yet. And maybe one of my favorite passages of this is, This corruptible will put on incorruption. Someone said, I saw the other day, they said, I get tired of hearing people say, the church is full of hypocrites. No, we got plenty of room if anybody else wants to come. We got empty seats. We can take all the hypocrites we need. Because every one of us is a hypocrite. We're all sinners. We're all messed up. Some of us are a little more civil than others, but we're all sinners. We're all messed up. Every church has problems. Every church struggles. Every church, look, you live in the world I live in, you deal daily with dying and struggling churches, and they all have problems. But here's what I do know. When that trumpet sounds, <laughs> when that trumpet sounds, and when Christ returns for his bride, this corruptible, this corruptible is going to put on incorruption. And if while I'm preaching right now, if it would be glorious enough that we heard that trumpet and the eastern sky opened, you and I would be moved from a, a state of corruptible humanness to incorruption. And we would be perfect from, from mortality to immortality. We would be made perfect. We would present to, to, the, to the Lord Jesus, to the, to the groom, a perfect bride. That is our inheritance. This is not all there is. And to look at it and say, well, this is all there is. I don't believe in it anymore. It's so short-sighted. Because at the end of that day, if you're wrong, man, you have really, there's no going back. No going back. So the gospel, the good news, the reason it's what the, the pool that we swim in is it reminds me every day, yes, people may be hard to get along with. They may irritate me. They may fail me. They may talk bad about me. They may cut me down. My church may disappoint me. But look, I may not get all the credit for everything I do, but look, if it weren't for what Jesus did for me, is doing for me, and continues to do for me, I would have no hope. And the gospel reminds us of where we were before Jesus intervened and did what only he could do. And I say so often, those who've been dealt generously with should be the most generous people in the world. And nobody's been dealt more generously with than those of us who are being redeemed 
every day. So you, you can cut some people some slack in your life, all right? People who rub you the wrong way, people who mouth off to you, people who irritate you, people who aren't like you, people who don't love you, you can look at them and you know what? Jesus saw me and loved me and all of my sin, and he continues to, and I can love them the way he loves me. What a glorious gospel. And I love the fact that Paul begins with these people with the gospel. If you're here this morning and you don't know that gospel, it doesn't resonate with you, then I would ask that this would be the day and the hour when you would ask the Lord to open your eyes and reveal you your need of a Savior. If you're like many of us and you live in some fear and anxiety and dread over the future and you have this dark cloud sometimes over us, just use this opportunity to remember here's Paul in prison facing death but so full of the hope of the gospel because the victory has been won so that we can hold that victory. And as he said to those Christians there in Colossia, to know the hope that is in you, laid up before you, that is a certainty. We have that hope. Let's remind one another of that hope every time we gather, every time we see each other. How wonderful that a guy who's in prison and probably facing a martyr's death can tell Christians, hey, isn't it great to be alive and be Christ and there's hope 